Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Business of Medicine series on ENT in a Nutshell. I'm Ashlyn Asiri, and today we are joined by Professor Robert Altman to discuss entrepreneurship in medicine. Professor Altman, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Ashley. Professor Altman is an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. He serves on the board of directors of Toltec Pharmaceuticals. In addition to his leadership position of president at Pinnacle Biologics, Professor Altman also served as CEO and president of Marathon Pharmaceuticals, which he co-founded. He also served as the senior vice president of marketing and sales at Estellas Pharma, and he held several senior positions during his 17-year career at Abbott Laboratories. He currently teaches an entrepreneurship course geared towards innovators in science and medicine. He is also an advisor to many early-stage pharma, diagnostic, and medical device companies. It is an absolute honor to have him on our show today to shed some light on entrepreneurship and how to take a potential business idea to the next level. Professor Altman, just to kick things off, can you give us some color on how you became an entrepreneur and what it was like to start a company? Sure, sure, I'd be happy to. Well, first of all, let's let's uh, actually talk about the top five reasons for starting up a business. One of them is power and control over life. Another is personal freedom of going it alone. Third, having a great idea that could make money. Fourth, being able to do the same thing as the boss, but better, and being out of work. And that's how I started out. <laughs> at, the, at the job before I started Marathon Pharmaceuticals, I actually got fired. So uh, I was out of work, had a family, and uh, needed to, to get back and, and do something. And I thought because of the experience I had had, you know, for spending many, many years uh, building businesses within pharmaceuticals, I thought it would be pretty straightforward. And I can tell you it was, <laughs> it was quite an eye-opener. You know, one of the things I, I, I like when I, I found this, it's a book that I use uh, sometimes, and it's on the Shackleton exploration to the South Pole. And his advertisement, you know, for people uh, to join him were, it was men wanted, but of course today it would be men and women wanted, for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Well, that's what it's like to be an entrepreneur and start a company. So I really, I really liked that. Um, one of the first experiences I had was, so I was employee number one. And my boss, who was the chairman, came into my office and said, hey, Bob, do you, uh, do you know the theory of the caveman? And I'm like, well, mm, not, not really, I guess. He said, well, the caveman only gets to eat what he kills. And so... Here's the way we're going to start this company. I'm not going to pay you anything. There's no bonus. There's no salary. There's nothing until you do a deal. And so, you know, fear is a great motivator. And uh, that's how we started off. And it was probably the best thing that could have happened to me. So I was, you know, off and running uh, with a tremendous sense of urgency to make something happen. That's just a little vignette into my experience in starting a company. It was, some of the most challenging times of my career, but also for sure the most gratifying. 
kind of going along with the what things are like at the beginning of this entrepreneurial process, even before an individual has committed to developing a business around an idea. For example, let's say you're a physician and you've identified either a product or service that would address a specific disease or clinical or operational problem. At what point do you say, let's develop a business around this? What does that situation usually look like? Well, I, you know, one thing I think we need to go back to is the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980, which basically said that you could use federally funded research, you could generate IP and use that and create companies because the idea was to bring many of these unique technologies that are being developed to, you know, bring them out to the public and the, where it can really help people. So I, I really see a tremendous drive there. I think one of, one of the ways that everybody should start on this, and let's talk about the university environment, which you know most uh, medical schools and departments are associated with, there's usually a technology commercialization area. And it's always good to start there um, because the heart and soul of a lot of companies is going to be the intellectual property. And if you don't have an IP exclusivity play, uh, it's going to make it very challenging to get going. And the tech commercialization shops will be a great resource to, to help you get started and to help you understand what you need to do to establish that IP or exclusivity as it may be. You know, uh, one of the other things is I think a lot of new or nascent entrepreneurs see their peers um, and they see peers that have done it and they say, sure, well, if they can do it, why can't I? And, you know, I'm associated with uh, the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago and our uh, medical school down there. And, you know, there are just some tremendous, tremendous researchers there with phenomenal ideas. And so many of the people do have do have winning ideas that that they can get out. I think another area there that people need to explore is there's a transition from, you know, academic research to business as, as I'm sure, you know, and I ask people this sometimes and they, I'm not sure it always goes over well, but it's like, tell me what you want to do. Do you want to win the Nobel prize or do you want to, you want to build a business? And it isn't like you can't do both. I mean, you could go ask, uh, the, <laughs> the two women that just won the Nobel for, uh, for the CRISPR technology. But, uh, a lot of times it's, it's, it's understanding that you're, you're going to be moving down a slightly different path here. And, you know, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people, inventors, you know, really see that this is an idea that's, that's made a tremendous difference in their practice and they're using it for themselves, and they really see how this could could be validated outside. And so, I think it's also important to to have that passion to to want to take a business that you that you have the confidence in. So, kind of at the early stages when you're still exploring, um, you know, different ideas and how well your idea or product may play out, then you do some background research. What specific components should be considered in that work and in that feasibility study before you get started? 
Yeah, well, you know, you obviously important things like customers uh, make our, you know, understanding that whole program. We'll talk about that in a second. But I, I also think what is sometimes overlooked early on is the importance of mentors and and advisors, because, you know, some people have a great idea, but it's they're just so close to it that they haven't really calibrated it against, uh, you know, a more formal group of people that, you know, would review it and also ultimately could be using this. And so I think there's no question that having a mentor is gonna, or a group of mentors is going to make a, a big difference. You know, one of the things that we have here and I'm sure is available around the country is the National Science Foundation i which is a program where new entrepreneurs, new companies uh, get learn formally how to do some of this market research and, and background, which will help really refine the idea. You go in with a null hypothesis as always, and you may have to pivot your idea once you talk to enough people. Um, there's a small stipend and, uh, you know, you you really need to talk to a number of different, uh, groups, sectors in the market, let's say, but, you know, there was a, there's an article by Chris Steiner, which talks about the 12 questions you should ask if, if you've really got a viable business. And I'm just going to give you a few of them. And one of them is, are you filling a void? In other words, what you don't want is just a science project that nobody cares about. You want something that's really needed out there. And then, as we just talked about, is the idea supported by market research? It's so important. There's so much learning to happen by talking to your customers. Here's an interesting one. Do industry experts hate your idea? I mean, a lot of times people hate it because they're established and they, they really can't see the change. And with some of the things that are happening, like in AI, big data, um, some of the established experts may not really understand and the power of that and, uh, and know how it can really be valuable and useful. And so I think, uh, you know, if, if some of the industry experts don't like it, that's no reason to be discouraged. Um, is there a high barrier to entry? You know, we talked earlier about... Uh, the, the situation with intellectual property. And it isn't always intellectual property. There are other ways of having exclusivity, but it's, it's very important. And certainly when you start um, pitching your ideas, it's, it's one of the first things that venture capital is going to be exploring. Can the idea be priced attractively? In other words, can you go out there and can you get market share? Um, market share is very difficult to get, uh, and you have to be able to price it at a point where you can make it a viable business, but also, uh, where you will be able to compete in the market. And that, that's really, you know, a couple of the other, uh, areas are, if it wasn't your idea, would you put money into it? Um, you know, I think a lot of people, do invest in their own business. They they do some of the early funding, you know, the quote friends and family around and family could be yourself. But, you know, you really want to make sure somebody 
would do that. And, and also from an investor standpoint, it's nice to see somebody that has skin in the game as well. And finally, can you pitch your idea as a business in 20 seconds or less? In other words, the elevator pitch. And that's something that, that you'll work on in the, in the i program. But I think it's really important because a lot of the investors or potential people that will be working with you aren't going to be as technically adroit as you are at this. And so you have to be able to communicate what your idea is, what your business is, and how it's going to, you know, not to get too grandiose, but really change the world. And you really have to be able to do that in a very concise, very short presentation. And I think when people actually start working on that, then they really learn more about the essence of of what their business is. Kind of going back to some of the building blocks that we discussed, you know, we talked about mentorship playing a role. What are some of the characteristics or behaviors or qualities that you think are important for the entrepreneur themselves to have or exhibit? There's a book by Tina Selig called What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. And she's out of Stanford, uh, out of the engineering and design school. And it's, it's a fabulous book. It will take literally, well, I'm a slow reader. So for somebody else, it would take a couple of hours to read. And one of the things that she says is, we believe, along with a growing number of universities around the world, that it isn't good enough for students to come out of school with a purely technical education. To be successful, they need to understand how to be entrepreneurial leaders and work in all working environments and in all parts of their lives. And I think that, to me, that was really that that was really important in terms of what we're looking for now, what, how, you know, it used to be, and when I, and I have a PhD and for me, it was like, you know, sleep in the lab, get your research done, publish papers, write your thesis and then move on. But, you know, really now we're, we're looking for a broader uh, cadre of people. And, and also the, another this is an article that I that I really I love this article and I think this is important for entrepreneurs at the beginning. You know, there's a lot of discussion now about something called impact investing. You know, double bottom line. And uh, and in this article, it's in the Harvard Business Review. It's by Bill Taylor. It's called "The Best Entrepreneurs Are Missionaries, Not Mercenaries." And and I'm just gonna give you. The, the mercenary statement, and then I'll give you the missionary statement. And while these are very subtle, I think you'll get the idea of, of how this could really change the attitude and the gestalt, if you will, of, of, a, of a new company. So for example, the mercenary has financial statements and the missionary would have value statements. The mercenary makes money. The missionary makes meaning. The mercenary has the value proposition and the missionary has values proposition. Mercenary would have success. The missionary success and significance. The mercenary what we do and the missionary what we believe. 
And I really think that gives a, a tremendous uh, spirit, if you will, to, to starting a company. I mean, that, and I, every class I teach, I use that. Whenever I talk to somebody who's starting a company, I require them to read it. Um, and I think it, it makes a, you know, a huge difference. And it's just something that I think more and more as we move on, uh, th this is going to be much more meaningful and important. But, you know, there are a number of traits that entrepreneurs share. Um, and let me, you know, just explore a couple of those with you. You know, you have to be full of determination not afraid to take risks. This as, you know, you don't have to go back to the Shackleton ad, but you know, these businesses are not without risk. You're trading something off, uh, whether it could be comp, could be time, could be emotional equity. You, you, you can't be afraid to take risks. And then I think one of the really challenging things is to understand that failure is really part of the game. And we'll talk about this a little later. 50% of the businesses fail after five years. If your business does fail, it doesn't mean you're a failure. It just means you've really learned something important that you can use to go forward. Um, passion is obviously very critical. Being adaptable. You need an understanding of money management because you are going to get funded in general and you'll have to apportion that to make it through your milestones. And networking is also very, very important. So let's say we've gotten to the point where we've decided that we're going to move forward and try to build a business around this idea or product that we've developed. What are some of the critical building blocks just when you're getting started? So first of all... <laughs> And I know you're going to say, okay, Bob, let's, we, we wanted to get better information from you than this. I mean, the first is to have a great idea. I mean, without, without that, you have, you have nothing. So the idea is critical. Some basic level of funding is also critical. You need a team that can support you with challenges, be they business, be they technical, be they medical, scientific, you've got to pick the right people for that. And then I think the other thing, which is, which is a bit under underestimated is you have to have a vision of what, what you want the company to be. Um, and I say this really to I've, throughout my career, but I've also say it, now, um, reputation, I, and this is a, a slide I have that I present to my students. I show a glass plate breaking. And a reputation is like fine china, very easy to break, but very hard to put together again. So it's very important to, to start off with, with understanding that you are going to be not only concerned about your reputation, the way you're going to keep that reputation is you're going to build a company that's very compliant, that's very, that understands, and this is generally true for most of the businesses that I'm involved in, and sounds like you as well, Ashley. We work in a highly regulated business, okay, whether it's the FDA, the DEA, whether it's your university, and, and so compliance is king and compliance has to be at the heart and soul of your, your new entity. You know, another one of the critical building blocks is uh, 
you know, it's usually, let's just say it's a scientist who could be a physician or not, or a professor that has this idea and, and wants to build a company. And so the way I look at this is I, in, in my class, I have a slide and it's, I say to the students, how, how many of you know about, have heard of Shakespeare? And most people raise their hand. And I said, and how many know one of his most famous plays? It's called Hamlet. And we get more people raising their hands. And, and the most famous line from Hamlet is to be or not to be. And for entrepreneurship, especially for a scientist founder, I've converted that to CEO or not to CEO. And I, so, you know, we're talking about building blocks. I think that's one of the early questions that you've got to answer is, do you want to be the founder CEO or do you want to be the chief scientific officer? Do you want to be a board member? It's different for everybody. Uh, investors look at it differently. I, there are some investors who, if you're a founder CEO, they, they will not invest. Um, and you know, that could make sense and maybe it doesn't, but again, it's a decision that you'll have to make whether that's something you want to do. Most scientists take myself, for example, at, at that point in time are not well versed in what it takes to build a successful business. But if they have the right support around them, it's certainly possible. And there are a lot of people now that have much more experience, you know, in different aspects of this than they did, you know, many, many years ago when I was a grad student, when that was when, of course, the dinosaurs roamed the earth. But, you know, it's a decision that people have to make. So I would just say when we talk about building blocks, I think that's, that's one of the areas that uh, people need to pay attention to. The term business plan is frequently used when we talk about entrepreneurship and putting together kind of a model for how the business will work. What are some of the components of a business plan and how does that guide business development and the vision of the uh, firm? When I was at some of my companies, we did business planning and it, it took so much time and it really was not, it, it was static. It was a static plan. And that's why I'm really a big fan of the business model canvas, which uh, is a much more straightforward way to create your business model. And it, it's dynamic uh, and it's, it's so elegant. Um, understanding customers and you know, va your value proposition, or as we said before, the values proposition who the partners are, and then how it all fits together and, and how that drives um, cash flow, you know, from revenues and costs. Uh, it, it's just so elegant. So, um, and the book is by Osterwald and Pinure called Business Model Generation. It's, uh, it's again, something that anybody can read and learn. And there's a lot of great examples in there of, of how to use this. And so, uh, so in terms of business model, I'm pretty much a big fan of this and I've gotten away from the 40 page quote deck to, uh, to impress a, a leader. 
And you touched upon this a little bit, at least in terms of surrounding oneself with the appropriate mentors and and team, but how do you put together the right team? What aspects or qualities do you look for in partners and mentors, and how do you manage those relationships throughout uh, this process? Yeah, well, I I think, you know, you need different people, different team members at at different times times or different phases of the company. You know, when you're in your proof and feasibility phase, you're going to shadow more on the technical side. If you're in a grant writing phase, you're going to need people that can support that because it's very time consuming, but critical, critical to get that non-dilutive funding uh, when you're starting a business. Then once you move on into fundraising, you're going to need a different kind of a, a person because fundraising is very challenging and it's it's more than just having the great idea it's you know understanding you know where the funding sources are and building out a story that foots with the desires of that could it be venture capital um, or could be different foundations in some cases. So it's very, very challenging, very critical. Um, and most of us, I'll say me, t- me too, it's, 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 it's really challenging. But I think I caution people to pay attention when you're building a team. And we've all had this situation where we've worked in a group and somebody's very toxic there. And, and, and if you're in a large, largest company and you have one person that's toxic, well, it's, it's irritating, but it's not debilitating. If you're in a very small company and, and there's somebody that's toxic, or I'll just use that as a generic term, it, it, it's, it's abysmal. It sucks. It's terrible. So what I encourage people to do is to hire slow. You know, we we all meet somebody, we click, and we say, oh, my God, I have to hire this person. You know, take your time. Everybody, you can reference them. You can talk to other people. Triangulate your hire. I mean, don't, don't rush into it. Um, so if the first mantra is hire slow, do you know what the corollary to that is, Ashley? It's fire fast. Um, so if you have somebody that you did make a bad hire you know you it's like you know what you're not doing anybody a favor by keeping that person around if if there's let's just say no rehab potential or they can't take feedback so hire slow and fire fast now you already mentioned that Building a business and specifically one that lasts a while is generally an iterative process and you can expect to um, need to pivot or alter ideas and even business models as you move along. You can also expect setbacks. Can you speak to the importance of having flexibility and what role that plays? Well, you need discipline because you're not you wouldn't have even started this business unless you were disciplined but things do change you know we talked about this earlier that 50% of the companies fail after 5 years so 
one thing is if things do change and the business doesn't make it, it doesn't mean you're a failure. It means you tried and you learned. Uh, I think also at this time, this is why you have advisors and mentors, people that you can bounce these ideas off, the way you can see what's happening, what, what the changes are, and really find out if they're how germane they are to the business, how if if this is fundamental, where it's like, oh my God, they they just change a regulation or a reimbursement that you know we would have been counting on. And now that that's out, there's no way that this this business is going to make it. You want to be able to talk to other people. And I think some of the tips that I would say for aspiring entrepreneurs um, are, you know, you want to learn from from your failures and you want to learn from other people's failures to see what what happened with your case what you did wrong in their case what they may have done wrong you also have to again make sure this is something that you really want to do because we 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 mentioned that you have to be passionate you are going to put your heart and soul into this business and it's going to become an important cornerstone of your of your life and then like I say, get advice from others who have done it before. I mean, you're not the first person to start a company. You're not the first person to come up with a challenge. And if you've got a great idea, I think people will have, you'll be able to get mentors and advisors that will that will be happy to be a part of it and give you guidance because, you know, they're going to have the same kind of passion for bringing these things out uh, to the people who need them like I do. And we've talked a little bit about failure Obviously, in an ideal world, the idea works beautifully. You're able to address a significant unmet need for your consumers. But like you said, the reality is that some startups are not successful. What are some of the warning signs that things are not headed in the right direction or some trends that you commonly see in failing businesses? Sure. Well, you know, as I said, um, you know, this happens a lot. Even with great ideas, sometimes it's it's really hard to to get funding, and you know that can certainly be a signal that you know things are running afoul. You know, if you're with a partner, and instead of a partner relationship, it becomes more of a predator relationship. Um, you know, where you technically want a divorce from that person. I mean, that's a I think that's a good sign that that things are going in the wrong direction. Um, but again, I, I emphasize this, uh, you know, we're all used to things didn't go well and, oh boy, I suck and this sucks, blah, blah, blah. It, no, you learned, you're learning from that. It's, it's, this is the nature of the beast. It's extraordinarily challenging to build a business, you know, um, very, very difficult. And you know what? you you tried that's outstanding and you you did your best and you've learned from that and the next time you do this those are the mistakes that you that you won't uh, that you won't be repeating so realistically entrepreneurship depending on the level of involvement as you mentioned is a major commitment is it possible to be a physician that continues clinical practice and also is an entrepreneur and manages a business? I think so. Again, you got to go back to the Hamlet 
take off to CEO or not to CEO. Maybe you want to be a the chief scientific officer and you'll still be a major shareholder. You'll still be involved in decision making, but you're not necessarily going to be the business face of the company, which is going to allow you to, you know, there are a lot of things associated with that that you won't have to do. So I've seen it both ways. You know, like I say, there are some people that are not cut out for this, but have a desire to be in control. So that can be a problem. Uh, That can be a challenge. But there are other people who can grow into it. And with the right mentors and with the right advisors and with the right desire to learn, uh, it, it can be done. Um, you know, a lot of the companies are spawned out of uh, work that's done in, in the laboratory there. You know, some of the work will, like I said, will be developed, will be the basis of the intellectual property, and then will be out-licensed from the university to your new company but you're very familiar with it and you have to be. Um, one of the companies I was recently working with, um, it's a proteomics company, which, you know, I, I was a, a chemical physicist, so I'm, you know, bi- biological, molecular biology is not my strong suit. So it took me a while to even get a feel for this because what, what these guys were doing was so advanced and so phenomenal. And that researcher was more of a the scientific heart and soul of the company, uh, had brilliant ideas of where this could go, but was leaning more on, you know, business people to take the lead in, in some of the uh, financing and uh, some of the more logistical aspects of the job, I guess I say. So I, I think it's, it's, it's possible for sure. You know, I think you've got to ask yourself how much control you want, how much time you're going to give. If you're honest with yourself, is it going to be more successful with you as the lead scientist or more successful with you as the lead scientist and the lead business person and the CEO? And at the end of the day, like I say, you're going to have a majority of the shares certainly to start with. So you'll be heavily involved anyway, but, you know, I think it's a decision that that's got to be made. Now, as we've kind of gone through all of this conversation, you've already mentioned several resources um, and texts and articles that, that you really uh, recommend. Have you anything else uh, for anyone who's interested to learn more about entrepreneurship or even to get started on developing a business model? Well, I think for the business model, I would read that the book by uh, Osterwald and Pinure. Uh It's it's super easy. I mean, we do in class. I assign, I think, probably the first third of the book for reading, and then have the students create a business model canvas, and they can do it on whatever they wish, which could be something they're working on in their labs or might not, um, and they've been smashingly successful at doing that. So I think that's, that's a really good start. Uh, this Tina Selig book is a quick read and it's inspirational. Uh, so I would, I would recommend that. And another book that I really like, uh, 
and this is this is sort of off topic for entrepreneurship, but it's called Leading at the Edge. And what what this book is is some clinical psychologists wanted to understand how teams work under extraordinary situations. So they would interview trauma surgeon teams to learn how what leadership is like there. And then they were able to put together 10 leadership lessons. And I, I like this because it, it's, it's a little bit non-academic in the sense that, you know, we're not studying, you know, hydrogen bonding, but it really lets you understand how leadership in, in these situations, how it can make a big difference. And, and you know, in a very small company, uh, and a lot of us aren't trained and developed in leadership, certainly out of the academic world uh, to some extent, uh, I think this gives some good inspiration, you know, uh, things, and I'll just, I won't go into all the details, but for example, do you see the marathon as a 26 mile race or 26 one mile water stops? Uh, and I think that, you know, to me, something like that is really meaningful because we, we get overwhelmed. I get overwhelmed if I have a task that's, that's too large, but this way you can, put it out in bite-sized chunks. And then as you achieve each one, you have a, a way you can celebrate and be very gratified of what you've done. So anyway, it's a book that, that I would recommend also. Um, there's a podcast called The Startup Podcast. This one is also very good about starting companies and it's uh, you know gr- great I- insight. So I would recommend that. Well, Professor Altman, thank you so much for being on our show. It's been absolutely wonderful speaking with you today. Do you have any last words of advice for our listeners? I would say that we're at a point now with so many technologies advancing that can help so many people that need them, that we need entrepreneurs. We need people to take their brilliant findings and their important findings and their thoughtful findings and and build them out so they can really help solve some of these important unmet medical needs. This is the time to do it. um, And uh, you will be so gratified and the world will be so much better also. Um, So I I really hope that people are encouraged. Uh, they realize this is, it's not a day at the beach, but the gratification of building a company with a meaningful product is, it's extraordinary. It's, it's, it's probably the highest high you can get. So I really hope that, you know, we can inspire this next generation of, of entrepreneurs to do that. Well, folks, with that inspiring quote from Professor Altman, that wraps up our episode of ENT in a Nutshell. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time.